Dwight's children's story reminded me of yesterday at our retreat. There are 50 or 60 of us gathered at Camp Montgomery in worship right now as well. Dale Child, who is the art teacher at RPDS, was having a painting class down by the lake, and there were 10 or so of us there, and she was helping me learn how to use watercolors, which I've never done before. And somehow we got talking about the children in her class and how inevitably, no matter how big the smock is she puts on them when they come in, they always leave with paint on their clothes. So here comes little Sally with a brand new smock dress, and she ends up with some big paint stain on it. And I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, the parents always get upset, so I just send Sally home to tell the parents to wash it in biz. And I said, really, does that work? She goes, I have no idea. It's the only laundry detergent I could think of at the time. The point being, you take what is available. And in her case, she gave some, what, some relief to that child that they were not going to go home and have parents upset with them that they would be stained when they got there. It's an interesting way that we should let our children leave when they are with us, isn't it? To relieve them of that fear. Today's scripture lesson comes to us from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. We've known this as the raising of Lazarus. If you've been around the church for a while, we've heard it a bunch. And I would like to say that I think it might be mistitled, for it should first be about the death of Lazarus. I will be reading selected verses, not the whole text, and I will share with you those verses that I do read if you would like to follow along. Hear the word as it was written by the writer of John's Gospel. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. In verse 3, so the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death. But they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus was already, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. 
When, Ma- when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him on the road. In verse 32 it reads, When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. This dramatic moment of Jesus facing the death of Lazarus and raising him up out of the grave is, in John's Gospel, the seventh sign that is given to us by John in order that we may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. But it was also the last straw for the religious authorities. After this, we read that They plotted to take his life, for if anyone can raise someone for the dead, then that means that everyone now will follow him wherever he goes, and if the whole Jewish nation follows Jesus, 
then there will be a complete revolution and the Roman authorities will get anxious and they will ride in and demolish not only the Jewish nation but the temple. We can't let this happen. Someone with this kind of power must be killed. We're not meant to miss the irony that is always apparent in John's gospel that Jesus brings a man back from the dead which would, in fact, be the cause of his own death. In fact, it was Caiaphas, the head priest at the time, the chief priest, who ironically also said, we must get rid of him for it is better that one man die than many. Apparently, according to John, there was one thing that Jesus could not do above all else, however. He could not keep Lazarus from dying. Otherwise, why did he wait? Maybe just to make things more dramatic, like that stereotypical cowboy movie where the cowboy on the white hat is on the horse and the noose is around him and all of a sudden, at the very last minute before they're to slap the horse and he gets hung, the lightning comes from God and and cracks Uh, splits the rope and then the hero rides off into the distance that last minute dramatic act is that what Jesus is doing the deep and emotional and financial expense to those who loved him Lazarus and his illness Jesus did let him die and be buried and die again for drama No. That would be the act of a megalomaniac. Maybe Jesus was just scared. I mean, the disciples had already said to him, you almost got stoned there. Why are you going back? So Jesus, afraid, decides he's going to figure this out. And it takes him two days to muster up enough courage to go back to Lazarus, his friend. That wasn't it either. For as we all know, Jesus had more courage than a thousand warriors. The text says, accordingly, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and after hearing he was ill, he waited two days longer in the place where he was. Why? clear that Mary and Martha both believed that if he had come in time, he could have prevented Lazarus from dying. He had healed a blind man just in the story preceding this one. They had seen many other healings, in fact. They knew what the text says. When the Messiah comes, the blind will see, the deaf hear, the lame will walk, and the dead will be raised. If only Jesus had come when he had been called, certainly he would have healed their brother And so they chided him when he finally did show up. Lord, Lord, if you had only come on time, he wouldn't have died. As I said, what he knew then was that even if he had been on time, Lazarus would have probably died anyway. For you see, Jesus did heal people and he brought sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and to the 
lame, they were able to walk at his touch. But he also knew that the powers of darkness and death would get their due. Death was still racing across the land and there was nothing he could do to stop it. Which he did completely, of course, on the cross in his own sordid, painful death soon after coming to this very place. I get the sense that the reason Jesus waited for two days was that he was just simply resigned knowing there wasn't anything he could do. This is a hard place to be when you're Jesus or when you are a healer of Jesus' love. I have a good friend in Atlanta who is probably one of the best doctors I know. He was head of staff at Piedmont Hospital, a cardiologist. He's as big as I am. His hair is whiter and beautiful. His voice is deep. He is a man's man and a magician in the hospital. And when his mother-in-law was dying of heart failure after he had tried everything for months to keep her alive, it was suggested to him that they call in hospice. At that suggestion, he just turned his head and began to weep. And then he shook his head, no, no, there's got to be something else we can do. But there wasn't. She died a week later in the lovely, honorable care of hospice nurses. When you're a healer, it's almost impossible to give in to the powers of darkness. Yet sooner or later. I think Jesus waited two days because he was resigned to the fact that sometimes you just have to give darkness its due. There are times when even Jesus can't heal it or fix it or prevent it or turn it around. As a preacher, how many times have you been asked, how many times have I been asked by so many people like Mary and Martha, where is he? Why is he not here? If he were here, this would not have happened. Why has God not shown up? Why has God abandoned us? Why has God left us out here like this? And as a representative of God, we preachers cannot say back any trite sayings that have any traction to them, like, well, you know, God must have needed him in heaven more than you needed him on earth. Slap me silly. There is no trite saying at all that works, only silence and presence with someone who feels abandoned in that place, and your presence is in fact the presence of Christ. So the less you say, the better. In those moments of darkness, when it does indeed seem like God has vanished, our job is to assure them that's not true by being present in their midst. And we don't always live up to it, I can tell you, especially your pastor. Jesus, you see, was willing to own up to the powers of darkness And when he arrived, he was met by Martha and Mary, and they say that when he got there, he was deeply disturbed. 
His soul was deeply troubled twice, it says it. The same language that is used when in Luke and Matthew and Mark, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is deeply troubled. His soul is deeply disturbed. For in John, this is Jesus' Gethsemane moment. And then if that doesn't reveal the power of darkness and the awareness of that for Jesus, the story says that seeing Mary weeping along with the others, Jesus wept too. He wept. There are no words in Scripture more revealing, no more words so moving as these He wept because he knew that darkness still wandered and took its toll. He wept because he knew that death was inevitable for everyone as well as himself. He wept because that is the way of grief and sadness, and it is all you can do when you can do nothing else in the dark night. Now, I get tagged on the staff uh, meetings in our meetings for being uh, what they call Dr. Dark. And uh, some of you have accused me of that as well, that I tend to be a little dark sometimes in my sermons. Uh, Look, I'm just preaching the text. Don't blame me. I'm just preaching the text. And there are some dark stories here. And this happens to be, at least for most of it, one of them. But what it does, you see, is it reminds us of the truth that we are all afraid of the dark. I remember far enough back that I was scared to death of it, and so I would holler for my mother to come in time after time, night after night, to help me get rid of the monsters and the ghosts and the witches that were supposedly under my bed or in the closet. Of course, they never were, but I didn't know that. It was dark, and I was scared, and so I would call her in, and she would open them all, turn on the light, show me there was nothing there, and then leave, and I would holler and call her back, and she would come back in, and finally, exasperated, she'd just leave the light on on the desk, and then I could go to sleep because there was light in the dark. I think, in a way, that the history of the world has been about that, us trying to get out of the darkness. From the earliest Egyptians' understanding of the gods and the pyramids pointing forth to the sun, to the law of the Hebrews to give us light in the darkness of inaction and immorality, to the light of Christ coming into the world, to the church building its giant cathedral-like buildings with stained glass windows so that the light would shine into the darkness of our spiritual world, to the enlightenment itself, that intellectual moment when we look back on the dark ages and see that they really were in the dark, but now that we've learned something about gravity and science and the way the sun uh, is at the center of the solar system rather than the earth, we're out of the darkness now, we're enlightened to the new world order we live in that came with electricity where we have headlights and we have stoplights and we have uh, house lights and we have uh, uh, all the kinds of lighting in the world. We can't go anywhere without light. And then when we get in the real dark and we don't know what to do, we put out, pull out our cell phones and light up that little LED screen so we don't have to spend one moment in the dark. We don't know what it means to be in the dark anymore, and it is an indication of how scared we are of it, I think. We're all scared of the dark because we know that darkness will get its due, and it does.
in Sudan, in Syria, in Russia, in China, in West and North Jacksonville, in Avondale and Riverside, in Ortega and Ortega Forest and San Marco, darkness gets its due. And there is nothing we or Jesus can do about it but grieve and wait. I think, this is a theory, I think that by being able to own up to this fact, this is the most, you're going to laugh, the most hopeful reality of all, you see. Because in being able to face the darkness, it means that we have some sense of hope that the darkness does not overcome us. In not being able to face the darkness, that's the real despair because we think the darkness is all-pervasive and we will get lost in it. So much these days about church and religion, I think, has become about light, 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 solar churches, sun out all the time, bright as it can be, music upbeat, never talk about darkness, never talk about anything. It's all good. We all leave with joy in our hearts. We all leave feeling better about everything. That's the point. I mean, life is so hard out there in the world. Can't we come to church and get something good? But I think underneath that is a sense of despair. If we can't also let the darkness in. I think churches most healthy are churches that are lunar churches. I learned this from Barbara Taylor. They, the light waxes and wanes. One day it may be as full as the fullest moon on the horizon. The next just a tiny sliver. Sometimes there's no moon at all. But it continues to cycle. And our experience of the power of light and darkness cycles with it. I love the way the story ends with Lazarus. He would, of course, die again. In time, darkness would come back. But in the meantime, Jesus was clear. The stone of fear and death must be rolled away. Jesus shouted the darkness out of that foul-smelling tomb. And Lazarus came stumbling out, dressed like a mummy in a Michael Jackson thriller video and Jesus says unbind him and let him go and of course that's the last word always from God unbind him and let him go just as we now will stand and say what we believe using our affirmation of faith 